Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to an Administrative Perspectives episode. In these two special edition episodes, we'll be hearing from the research award winners from Asia's 2022 scientific meeting. Authors will be given five minutes to present their award-winning work and discuss any future directions. We hope you enjoy the episode and hope to see you at next year's meeting in Atlanta, where you may have the opportunity to have your work presented on the podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Smith. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Physical Therapy Program at the University of Colorado. And myself and Dr. Enrico Rich are here today to present our work for the Recognizes the Trone Award, uh, titled Epidural Stimulation Promoted Standing Ability and Spinal Cord Lesion Characteristics in Motor Complete SCI. So Enrico, if you wouldn't mind taking it from here. Sure, hi all. Uh, I am Enrico Rage, an assistant professor at the Kentucky Spinal Cord Injury Research Center, University of Louisville. This research project was focused on the recovery of standing promoted by spinal cord epidural stimulation and on the characteristics of the spinal cord lesion in individuals with chronic motor complete SCI. Until a decade ago, uh, we generally tended to ignore the potential contribution to motor recovery of the spare connectivity across the lesion in individuals with chronic complete SCI, just because this condition resulted in complete and persistent paralysis. However, this assumption has rapidly changed when we and other research groups showed that some of these motor complete individuals were able to volitionally generate leg movements and also volitionally modulate the lower limb motor patterns during standing and stepping, but only when epidural stimulation was applied. And because of these initial observations, in this study, we decided to assess whether the characteristics of the spinal cord injury at the lesion site in motor complete individuals were related to the recovery of standing overground promoted by epidural stimulation. And Dr. Andrew Smith led the analysis of the spinal cord imaging by MRIs and quantified the amount of the spared spinal cord tissue for different spinal cord regions in a total of 11 research participants. In the regression analysis that we implemented showed positive associations between the amount of the spared spinal cord tissue and standing ability promoted by epidural stimulation. For example, the total spared core volume was significantly related to the achievement of independent bilateral lower limb extension. And there were also side specific associations between the amount of spared core tissue in the lateral spinal cord regions and the amount of independent extension generated by the right or the left lower limb. And so in conclusion, these initial results suggest that the spinal cord lesion characteristics 
can indeed play a role in the recovery of motor function promoted by epidural stimulation after a chronic motor complaint injury. These findings were really exciting for Rico and I, and um, we are excited to continue this line of work, especially the clinical scans that we used for this current project were just that. They were clinical. They weren't necessarily high resolution. They weren't collected for this particular reason. And uh, Enrico and I want to now prospectively collect imaging in a higher resolution format to look at this in a you know, more a priori uh, hypothesis-driven fashion. Another thing that Enrico and I are really looking forward to is potentially applying some of these imaging principles and techniques to an animal model or animal models of, of spinal cord injury then implanted with epidural stimulation. With that, we could maybe uh, potentially be able to correlate some of these MRI-based measures with research like histology, other techniques to really get a better handle on the spared tracks that we may be measuring with our techniques and how they play a role in epidural promoted voluntary movement, standing, and stepping. Now, uh, I'll let Enrico elaborate on this, but what I've always thought fascinating, even when I was kind of coming up and reading um, the literature, what I thought was really fascinating was that, you know, they, they'll, for instance, transcranial magnetic stimulation and trying to record MEPs distally. From my understanding, they'll, they'll crank up the TMS machine to max and they won't be able to record any MEPs. Uh, same thing going the opposite direction with somatosensory vocal potentials. So it just seems that some of these neurophysiological techniques that may be able to pick up evidence of sparing have essentially failed to do so, um, at least in those cohorts that, that Enrico and, and his team have, have published on. Yeah, and, and so there were, so now oh, I would say we, we go into the details of each study because for, for the, the initial uh, studies that were more focused on, on motor control, we actually, so one of the inclusion criteria was, you know, not to see any neurophysiological sign of, of completeness. And so, in, again, the, the inclusion criteria was, so no MEPs uh, induced by transcranial magnetic stimulation or no responses to reinforcement maneuvers. And so we have a subset of participants that are considered also complete from a neurophysiological standpoint. But then we have other clinical, you know, another clinical trial where this specific inclusion criteria was not, uh, you know, was not considered. So we, we know whether there are signs of neurophysiological completeness or not. But again, we may have both. Uh, my name is Matthew Hanks. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I'm a previous postdoctoral fellow uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a former research volunteer at Shriners uh, Children in Chicago. Uh, I am the recipient of the 2022 Vogel Award, and my project was the influence of sex on upper extremity joint dynamics in pediatric manual wheelchair users with spinal cord injury.
so this project was published in Topics in Spinal Cord Injury Rehabilitation in fall of 2021 for the special issue, Emerging Technology to Evaluate Function and Mobility Among Individuals with SCI. Uh, this research uh, was conducted uh, during my time as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in collaboration with Shriners Children's in Chicago. And this project was partially funded by the National Institutes on Disability, Independent Living uh, and Rehabilitation Research, or NIDLR, as well as the National Institutes of Health. Uh, the purpose of this study was primarily to investigate differences in trunk, shoulder, elbow and wrist joint motion and forces during manual wheelchair propulsion between pediatric males and females with spinal cord injury. Uh, the motivation of this work was, was really twofold. The first is that there's limited research in the pediatric manual wheelchair propulsion uh, literature. So a lot of the assumptions and clinical translations that are geared toward children spinal cord injuries come from the adult literature. So Dr. Brooks Slavin's research at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee is some of the first research to investigate the biomechanical differences between pediatric and adult manual wheelchair users with spinal cord injury. So that's kind of the first motive. The second was that regardless of whether it's the, the pediatric or the adult literature, there's really limited work exploring the influence of biological sex on manual wheelchair propulsion. So for this study, we recruited 20 participants, 11 males and nine females of similar height, weight, age, self-reported pain, level of spinal cord injury, uh, and Asia impairment scale or Asia score. We affixed reflective markers to the participants' chest, back, and arms, and we had them propel their personal manual wheelchair uh, setup at a self-selected speed, and we tracked their motion using motion tracking cameras and a force-sensing instrumented wheelchair hand rim. After we collected the data, we used an upper limb biomechanical model that we then used to compute those uh, joint motions and forces. We observed no differences in overall trunk or upper limb joint ranges of motion. However, uh, when we dug a little deeper, uh, we did find that pediatric females propelled with greater forearm pronation and elbow posterior force and wrist lateral forces when we normalized those forces to the participants' body weight to account for potential differences in body weight between the males and females. So kind of all in all, we did end up finding some differences in upper limb motion and forces between pediatric males and females and these differences may be useful to consider when assessing pediatric mobility. Yeah, so some of the next steps uh, and future goals for this research. First, I'd like to mention that while this study was great, it was what we call a cross-sectional study, so just one moment in time. So we had these individuals in the lab participating just the once. Um, and so future research would certainly look at these individuals over time in a more longitudinal design, and this would help us to better uh, identify differences in males and females with spinal cord injury over the course of their, their growth and maturation. Also, future research is needed to understand the implications, uh, if there are any, of the differences in these motions and forces and how these may or may not be related to the development of upper limb uh, pain and pathology. Lastly, other factors that can contribute to the differences that we observed in the biomechanics 
and also may influence the development of upper limb pain and pathology, uh, such as physical activity status, manual wheelchair setup, or just simply aging should also certainly be investigated further. So therein lies a true passion of, of mine and a specific uh, aim of my research, which is currently exploring the influence of exercise and physical activity uh, to improve shoulder biomechanics and strength to reduce or delay the development of shoulder pain uh, and pathology with the aims of improving function and quality of life. Um, so that is certainly a future direction for, for not just this project, but for my research in general is certainly understanding uh, physical activity levels and how those influence things like shoulder biomechanics and the potential development or uh, reduction of shoulder pain and pathology. Uh, my name is Kevin Park. I'm an assistant professor at Craig H. Nielsen, located at University of Utah. This project, uh, titled Benefit of a Mechanical Exflation on Ventilator-Dependent Spinal Cord Injury Patient in an Acute Rehab Center. This is a case series. We started this because we noticed that outside of hospital transport patients with high cervical injury, all down to the thoracic level, uh, admitted to our SCI unit, then quickly transferred out to the ICU due to the uh, ventilator-associated aspiration bacterial pneumonia. And, you know, acute side, uh, number one issues is, uh, for these patients are respiratory issues. That is well-known and well-documented. So patient with cervical uh, thoracic injury has a weak diaphragm, weak intercostal muscle, which uh, prevent them from breathing well and unable to generate sufficient force to expel mucus. So uh, this MIE, uh, mechanical insufflation, exufflation, has been long documented to give a, a benefit and improvement of uh, secretion and mucus mobilization. By presenting these cases that we had, we wanted to raise the awareness to a different center around the uh, um, neuromuscular patients. We will need uh, MIE to prevent respiratory distress. It's like brushing the teeth, uh, you know, you do it regularly to prevent you from getting cavity, preventing patients from respiratory distress. If patient is vented, uh, MIE may be effective tool weaning a mechanical ventilator in acute cervical spinal cord injury. We can't prevent all the pneumonia, but we want to decrease the number of incidents. So we wanted to implement this and let people know and Asia Community Conference to have this idea, make sure that they do this protocol for their patients with a cervical uh, injury and thoracic injury to prevent the respiratory uh, illness for uh, our surgical patients. It's not about the uniqueness of the uh, uh, poster. I think uh, we want to raise the awareness. Uh, I think that's it because of so many institutions out there has not been doing this uh, protocol that is well documented. So we've been, we want to be the advocate for uh, those, you know, institution and uh, people for patients to get out there and tell them, hey, this is needs to be in your protocol in your hospital in order to decrease all this complication from a uh, respiratory issue. So in that regard, no, it's not unique, but it is so important because we don't all do it. This uh, poster was awarded, this poster was awarded uh, the Marco Fellowship Award.
So we decided to go one step further than just, you know, implementing uh, insufflation exploration. Actually, our institution at the, uh, with the future direction, with the direction of a pulmonary critical care doctor here at Dr. Uh, Jeanette Brown, we want to come up with the ventilator weaning protocol, which part of it includes MIE protocol. In acute syndrome to home, you know, wherever they are uh, attached to ventilator, we want to make sure they will be able to wean off of those ventilators and stay clean of infection from there on. And we're moving forward. Our research is going to develop these uh, protocols so everybody in all the institution, acute side, rehab side, or just families at home trying to wean off can use it. So not many rehab centers accept the ventilator due to resource complications, unfamiliarity, uh, really. And then not having a critical care doctor at the bedside, you know, on the ventilator. Since we have that luxury, we want to, you know, come up with the weaning protocol that helps with, you know, patient wean off from the ventilator safely in SCI population or other, you know, uh, population with a neuromuscular disease. You know, the, uh, in COVID time, ARDSnet, ARSnet ladder helped uh, healthcare workers tremendously, you know, taking care of a high volume of intubated patients. We are hoping to come up with a step-by-step uh, ladder approach to weaning protocol that, you know, we can apply to these neuromuscular mechanical ventilator uh, patients. So come up with the, you know, uh, evaluating, is it safe to wean off? You know, uh, what setting do I have to use? Start from SIMV, pressure support, you know, when can you go down? If you're at this setting, then what is the next setting that patient can tolerate? So we wanted to making sure to spell it all out. If you're here, error goes to here next. And slowly, the goal is make the patient come off the ventilator and continue to do uh, MIE treatment and decannulate it. And hopefully, it won't need any of that later, you know, year after injury. Michael Failings, Professor of Neurosurgery uh, at the University of Toronto, and I was very honored uh, to receive the Apple Award at the American Spinal Injury Association meeting. And this award, um, which is given for the best uh, paper in the field of spinal cord injury in the preceding uh, year, related to a work that was published in the Lancet Neurology. The work was entitled The Influence of Timing of Surgical Decompression for Acute Spinal Cord Injury, a Pooled Analysis of Individual Patient Data. So this study was a pooled meta-analysis in over a thousand patients with an acute spinal cord injury. The data were pooled from a number of prospective data sets, and it addressed a controversial and important subject related to the role and timing of early surgical intervention for traumatic spinal cord injury. And this uh, study provided what I think is quite convincing evidence that uh, surgical decompression and stabilization within 24 hours of all forms of spinal cord injury uh, results in improved benefits as shown on a number of outcome measures, including Asia motor scores, as well as Asia grade changes. And this showed an effect for both cervical and thoracic injuries. What was also interesting was that we were able, for the first time, 
to model the precise effect of the timing of intervention on outcome. And we showed a rather steep dose response relationship between the timing of surgical intervention and the beneficial outcomes, uh, providing strong evidence in favor of the role of early surgery. So what will this mean from a practical perspective? Well, this will change uh, the way doctors treat their patients and the way uh, clinical protocols are designed. In 2017, I was involved with a guidelines effort that was spearheaded through AO Spine that for the first time provided recommendations around the role and timing of early surgical intervention for spinal cord injury. But based on the best available evidence at that time, uh, the recommendation was, was really only a suggested option. And it was felt that higher quality data in a particular data that would allow a meta-analysis was required. And this really uh, spawned this paper that was uh, then subsequently published in Lancet Neurology last year. This paper has now stimulated AO Spine and a number of other professional groups, including the North American Spine Society, North American Clinical Trials Network, and other groups to revisit these guidelines. And uh, while it'll take some time to complete the guidelines effort, it's very likely that what will emerge is a very strong recommendation that when feasible, all patients with an acute spinal cord injury should receive surgical decompression and stabilization within 24 hours. And it's anticipated that this will have a, quite a significant impact on trauma protocols. So this paper uh, has spawned uh, enormous interest in the clinical uh, community. So one immediate step is that uh, the paper has um, stimulated efforts to revisit the existing guidelines for the uh, management of acute spinal cord uh, injury. And the paper has also spurred a number of efforts by other uh, clinicians to validate these results. And in fact, this has occurred. So these guidelines efforts are underway. What's also emerged uh, from this uh, paper is the idea of ultra early surgery. And so the thought is, well, okay, if this 24 hour time window is felt to be a golden window, is it possible fe and feasible and potentially beneficial to try to intervene at an earlier time point. So this has been referred to as ultra early surgery and there's a lot of interest that's been spurred on this topic. And then a third topic that is emerging uh, now relates to the techniques that are involved in achieving a decompression, how much decompression is required and how do you monitor uh, this both in the acute critical care setting as well as by post-operative imaging, such as uh, um, MRI scans. So in kind of this whole idea about trying to monitor uh, the acutely injured spinal cord. And, and so because surgeons are now intervening early, it's recognized that the timing and the techniques of decompression are, are of interest. And so it also affords the opportunity, to, for example, to place catheters, in the intrathecal space to measure CSF pressures and to try to then optimize spinal cord 
uh, perfusion pressures. There's a lot of interest in trying to image the cord. Jim Guest, in fact, has a big interest in ultrasound uh, imaging. So there's a lot of interest on that. What can you learn from that? So there, it, it, it's opening uh, a whole area of a translational research, which is actually very nicely linked to some of the basic science uh, studies as well. Hi, I'm Alberto Sacper San Pablo. I'm a medical science researcher at the National Institute of Rehabilitation in Mexico City. And I have a bachelor in science in bionic engineering, a master in science in biomedical engineering, and a PhD in uh, control engineering. So our project is entitled Reliability and Validity of the Assessment of Drone Control in Pediatric Subjects with a Spinal Cord Injury Using the Smartphones. And for that uh, paper, we received the Mulcahy Award. So in this work, we were trying to get practical uh, instruments in order to assess uh, sitting drone control in children with a spinal cord injury but not only practical, but also reliable and valid methods. So our group has recently validated the accelerometry in order to assess trunk control in people with spinal cord injury, in fact, adults with spinal cord injury. However, accelerometry cannot be easily transferred to clinical practice. So this is one of the main limitations of this technology. And also the pandemic's stress and other limitations has the impossibility to assess patients by tele telemedicine. So in order to fulfill that uh, gap, we try to transfer our knowledge from accelerometers to uh, a more practical technological alternative. And that alternative was the use of smartphones. So in this project, we try to evaluate the test reliability and also the validity construct and criterion validity of the smartphones in order to assess strong control in pediatric subjects with a spinal cord injury. So to do that, we developed a cross-sectional study, which was performed using the, same, the previous methodology that we have already validated for the validation of accelerometer, uh, accelerometers in people in adults with a spinal cord injury. So in order to register accelerometry, we register it using the smartphones during the application of a, of a clinical scale, which is the clinical tone control scale, which was already validated in our group. And also we use the SATCO scale, which has been used in children with uh, a spinal cord injury. So in order to assess reliability, we repeated uh, some uh, items of both measurements uh, in random order. And also in order to validate uh, the accelerometer measurements, we correlated them with the clinical characteristics of, us, of our patients, which include the neurological level of injury, the Asian impairment scale, the etiology and the time since injury. So uh, the accelerometer was fixed on the chest of the participant, and we calculated some, some measures, which include the minimum and the root minimum square of the acceleration. So that resulted in a total of four smartphone parameters. From this pool of parameters, we tried to, to get which of them were the most reliable and also the more valid against the clinical characteristic of us characteristics of the subjects. So this study protocol was approved by the Institutional Research and Ethics Committee and informed and assent consent was obtained from all the participants. As a result, we measured eight children, five female, three male, 
and they presented at times in injury from two to, the, to eight years and age impairment scale from Asia. Ace I to Ace E, 50% um, of the children had a neurological level of injury about D6. They had great capacity, independence in the movement in using a, a, a manual wheelchair. And as a result, we obtained a, a mean phone control scale score on average about 20 and a mean SATCO score about 15. And uh, five children showed a high level of tone control according to our SATCO scale. Uh, and carry one uh, smartphone parameters show an intra-class correlation coefficient about 0.5. From then, only 10 acceleration parameters show a significant correlation with the clinical tone control scale or the SATCO scale. Three of them showed a high correlation with the AESS and the RMS of the acceleration of the vertical axis resulted to be the best parameter to assess uh, tongue control in children with spinal cord injury because it showed uh, the ability to distinguish subgroup of patients according to the neurological level of injury, their gait capacity, their indoor mobility, and also the level of tongue control. So in conclusion, the accelerometry registered using the smartphones was reliable and also valid for the evaluation of tongue control in the subjects with the spinal cord injury. So our next goal will be to transfer this already validated technology to a bigger population of, of uh, clinicians uh, who attend these this, this children. So in order to transfer that, we have to work a little bit more on the, on the app. And also, well, we were amused by, by the results. So we are thinking in tackling other fields, not only trunk control, but also gate would be interesting. So this is the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation Allied Health Professional Research Award of Asia. And the title of my project is Reversing the Trend Provisional Clinical Strategy to Reduce Incidents and Impact of Wheelchair Repairs and Spinal Cord Injury Rehab. My name is Blake Perkins. I'm a physical therapist at the Metro Health System in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. I run our outpatient, it's an assistive technology clinic. I do the majority of the time I work with wheelchair seating provision. Also recently just received another award unrelated to this, but we'll, we'll do um, some more novel uh, assistive technology provision for high tetraplegia. And that clinic is to be up and running within the next few months. But uh, I'm, I'm the assistive technology guy there. Uh, aside from that, that's 50% of my work. The other 50% is research uh, oriented. And I work in uh, high spinal cord injury and upper extremity rehabilitation in coordination with the Cleveland Functional Electrical Stimulation uh, Center. So those are my two, that pretty much sums it up pretty, pretty well for me. So the study, the project that I'm working on, again, title is Reversing the Trend Provisional Clinical Strategy to Reduce the Incidence Impact of Wheelchair Repairs and Spinal Cord Injury Rehab. Um, the purpose of this, this study that I'm wanting to do is kind of a it's a combination of perspectives that I obtained from being an end user over the past 11 years, being a clinician that works in wheelchair seating and mobility, and also in reviewing some of the, the most recent and older studies as it pertains to repair incidents and the impact of those repairs in people who are full-time wheelchair chair users, which many individuals, I would venture to say this isn't a stretch, who have spinal cord injury are within that umbrella of folks. 
So this is a problem that's been longstanding for since statistics regarding it have been been tracked in 2004. It's been an issue, and it hasn't gotten much better over the course of of that time period. Um, and another juxtaposition that I have from my own personal background is um, I used to work as a vendor in complex rehab technology prior to obtaining my my license and my degree in physical therapy, and I saw the deprioritization of repairs for people that were chair users because of the lack of profitability and sometimes because of the negative profitability. And it's not like this this project is cr to create a, a witch hunt of sorts per se, but it's to take more accountability and responsibility as a clinician involved in the provision of this stuff to, to train end users on uh, having more autonomy with it. So what I'll be doing is over the course of a year, I'll, uh, I'm developing as we speak a tool, which is basically a wheelchair maintenance plan of care, where I'll be training end users, people with spinal cord injury who are full-time chair users, and their support people, their caregivers, on how to maintain their chair, how to do some light uh, repairs that, that wouldn't void any manufacturer warranties, how to use smartphone technologies and scanners that are available per various manufacturers to sort of give people red flags as to when we need to get vendors involved, get repairs underway so that we're not stranded. Because in one of the most recent studies I read from Lynn Warbate at Pittsburgh was that it's basically a flip of the coin as to whether you're going to be stranded or at home or outside of home or miss work or social events as a result of a wheelchair repair, the need for a wheelchair repair. If you don't have a backup chair, it's a big problem. So that's what this study is looking to do. I'll be tracking people with a functional mobility assessment, quest, user satisfaction, also be collecting data on SCI core data set and looking at how things change. It's basically a cross-sectional study, but over the course of a year to see if we make any difference. My sample size will be 15 to 20 people and their caregivers, if applicable. And, uh, and we'll see what sort of difference that we can make. But the goal is to take uh, some, a little bit more accountability than I think I have and that I've seen um, professionally and in the literature as clinicians in mitigating some of these repairs and the adverse events that are associated with them. Well, I think it's my own personal bias that I have to acknowledge is that I'm an end user, have a spinal cord injury. I've been a vendor, so I've worked on chairs and I'm a clinician in wheelchair provision. So I'm already coming from a place that's kind of de- mystified some of the perhaps intimidating aspects of wheelchair provision and service provision altogether. So the goal is to take all the devil that's in the details of the issues that we're running into and how people can take more accountability and responsibility from a training perspective. And then as end users to, to be more aware of maintenance schedules on your chair and try as best as I can, as best as you know, people that are m much more talented than I am that I'll consult with on how we can simplify things and, and make it more user-friendly and digestible to people who don't have, from a clinician standpoint, a lot of experience with it, or from an end-user standpoint, a lot of experience with it. So that's going to be the biggest challenge is, you, you know, we're, I'm trying to unpack everything right now. And then as we get data and we can sort of develop more stratifications of issues, stratifications of of uh, repairs or maintenance per manufacturer or per wheelchair type, or if you've got this number of power seating features, you need to look for this, or if you've got this you know, type of manual wheelchair, be it folding or rigid, okay, we need to watch out for this. So if we can start to kind of categorize things for people to implement 
from more of a protocol-based standpoint, I think that that would be helpful and more easily digestible to the larger clinical population and end-user population. So that's the goal, eventually. David here. Thank you for listening to this unique episode of SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The podcast is made possible due to the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, our producers and hosts, myself, David McMillan, and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Conception, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com.